Thank you, Nathan. Nate, as we delineate between us. It's weird to think about being Mark's boss. I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, Mark is an extremely accomplished musician. He was the music minister for 30 years at First Baptist Church down the road, and he left there to take on this project of helming a new hymnal called Celebrating Grace, which you have in your Purex in front of you. He spent years compiling and working with a team to, to get that hymnal produced. So thank you for your efforts, Mark. We uh, have been enjoying that hymnal for years at this church. Um, we, Mark smiles when he says, you know, that it's weird to, to work with me now because I, I probably was not the most uh, upstanding choir member, maybe. I uh, drove him a little crazy with my friends in youth choir as we did not always take it so seriously. But uh, we survived six choir tours. I think Lauren was on those tours as well. And even one time when, when Lauren had this great place for us to go in North Carolina up, uh, up a mountain and... Uh, the fact that Mark and Lauren are still friends is a testament to the grace and uh, forgiveness that, because uh, <laughs> we decided to go up this mountain and Lauren said, oh, it's just right up here. The buses will totally make it. And a few minutes later, Mark was knocking on the front door of one of the houses on the side of the mountain saying, can we turn these charter buses around in your front yard? Would that be okay? <laughs> it was quite an adventure, but no one fell off. We had to get all the students off the bus because the danger of the bus rolling off the mountain was very real at that point. So no one died. It was a wonderful uh, experience. Great memories for me, at least. Thank you for your service. Today it's a new month, March. Friday was a new month, technically. It's a new season, almost spring. If you notice the dogwoods are blooming, my backyard is full of green buds all over the, the trees and the foliage at my house. It's also the start of a new season in the church calendar on Wednesday, begins the season of Lent, as Justin mentioned in his prayer. So today we begin a new sermon series as well. We're not abandoning our walking through John. We're still going to be in the book of John. For people that find that repetitive that we're in John for a year, let me remind you, it's a different text each week, okay? It's not like we're just preaching the same text every week. All these texts for the month of March, though, however, coalesce around this theme of unity and healing. So we're going to call this month's sermon series Reconciled and Restored. Over the next five weeks, we're going to see that Jesus has this amazing life-changing encounter with a Samaritan woman at the well. I'm not going to be here next week, and neither is Mark, but Jason Early, our midweek worship leader, is going to be here to lead the, the praise band. And Trey Heyman, the Reverend Trey Heyman, will be bringing a word from John chapter 4. Uh, you don't want to miss that. But we're going to look at this cross-cultural ministry that Jesus and his disciples engaged in in this strange town of Sychar in Samaria. And then we're going to look at two passages where someone's healed by Jesus' miraculous grace and power. But first, we're going to take a look at a key passage about the supremacy of Christ above all. And then we're going to celebrate the Eucharist today, the, the good grace of the Lord, the Thanksgiving dinner of the Lord's Supper, and experience Holy Communion with God our Savior. So I hope you're ready for all that God wants to do with us this morning. Let's begin by standing in honor of God's Word as I read John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. Hear the Word of the Lord. 
After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had yet to be put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, Morgan and I had the opportunity to, to go on a date last Thursday night before the, the weekday preschool fundraiser at, at Third and Lindsley, which was awesome, by the way. Uh, a lot of funds uh, raised for our, our kids and our school that, that is over on the west side of our building, a uh, wonderful ministry that our church has. And we hadn't made dinner reservations, and we wanted to go to one of these cool new restaurants around town, and we frantically began researching what the, the best, coolest restaurants in town were. Henrietta Red, Little Octopus, Henley, Union Common, Hawthorne, Saltine, Bastion, Char, right over here, Folk, Emmy Squared, all the places that Calvin, you've been to all those places, haven't you? It's true, I know, you and Jamie. It's hard to keep up with all these amazing new restaurants. We're, we're, we're a food town now. People come here as a destination for food, and apparently all these restaurants are able to sustain a, a level of, of you know, availability still because they keep popping up. But I also read in the Tennessean about some restaurant closings. There's a bit of competition for the diners of Nashville. These restaurants are trying to compete for the patrons of Nashville who enjoy a nice meal out. Our text today starts out with a sort of rivalry that's beginning in the desert. This section of John's gospel at the end of chapter three serves as kind of an interlude between the encounter with the woman at the well in Samaria and the encounter with Nicodemus. So we just finished the section where Jesus encounters Nicodemus at night we're going to look at the Samaritan woman next week, but first we have this important interlude with, once again, John the Baptist. There's a bit of controversy that's starting out in the wilderness, apparently. It's not the kind of sinister intrigue that, that comes from evil intentions, but sometimes, even in the midst of 
good purposes in ministry, people get their feelings hurt. See, there, there's two different groups that were performing baptisms in the same region. John and his followers and the disciples of Jesus. Jealousy creeps in subtly, doesn't it? The followers of John are feeling like the ministry of Jesus is quickly becoming the, the hot ticket in town and they're feeling a little slighted, maybe a little bit threatened. So verse 25 tells us that a, a Jewish man comes and apparently said something like, okay, who's got the best baptism here? Who's, whose baptism, baptism game is superior to the, the other? Who's, whose baptism is the best? And this guy gets John's disciples all riled up. Look at verse 26. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, remember John pointed and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. I love the exaggeration here. It reminds me of my own kids. You know, I'm starving. I never get to watch whatever. I never, you know, that's how life is with my children. Everyone's going to him to get baptized. No one's coming to us anymore. We're ruined. John the Baptist used to be the big draw. Remember all these crowds that line the riverbanks waiting patiently for their turn to receive the baptism that John the Baptist administered to them. I, I get it. I don't, I don't blame these disciples, right? It's, it's so easy to get caught up in the comparison and competition game, isn't it? We're all prone to, in our, our flesh, in our fallen, broken, sinful nature, to compare ourselves to those around us. You know, I get a copy uh, of the newsletter, the monthly newsletter from the church across the street. I usually tell people, you know, where we are. I say, you know the big white church in Green Hills? They say, yeah, that's your church. I say, no, we're the one across the street from it. <laughs> But I, I get their newsletter, and, and it has their, you know, worship attendance numbers, and I always find myself comparing our numbers against theirs. It's petty. I know it's silly. It's fruitless. It doesn't do anybody any good, but I still find myself doing it every month in my own flesh. But if Jesus Christ is being glorified, if Jesus is being preached over there, if the Bible is open, God's word is being proclaimed, then great. We're all on the same team then. We should be cheering each other on instead of comparing or competing. Satan would love to divide God's church through comparison and through competition. He would love to steal our joy. I saw the youth's uh, D Now shirt says in the back, John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. He would love to steal our joy by, by causing us to compare ourselves to others and compete to be, quote, better than them. Comparison is the enemy of contentment. Comparison inevitably leads to ingratitude to complaining, to joylessness. Comparison leads to greed and jealousy, always. It breeds bitterness and resentment. Comparison always divides, it destroys unity. Don't let Satan draw you into that sick, petty, fruitless game of comparison. 
It would have been easy for John to fall into this trap. He could have scrambled to set up some signs real quick and, and get some new uh, two-for-one deals on baptisms and, and start making new promotions and getting social media push out there. I don't know what he could have done to try to compete with the growing ministry that Jesus was cultivating at the time. There's a phenomenon that I've, I've heard about that's prevalent really here in the South where there's still large numbers of Christians who go to church on Sundays. That's declining even in the South, but it's called sheep stealing. Have you heard of this? Sheep stealing is where churches grow not through evangelism, not through reaching lost people, but by stealing sheep from other churches to come to our church. It's not a healthy way to grow a church, is it? Sheep stealing is not motivated by love. Sheep stealing is motivated by wanting to be the biggest and the best. It's selfish ambition. That phenomenon of sheep stealing is nothing new. Even the Apostle Paul dealt with it. Look at Philippians chapter 1. It'll be on the screens here. Verse 15, Paul's in prison, and he's, he's hearing news about some of these new ministers who are out there to make a big name for themselves. And he writes this to the church in Philippi. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. People were actually out there while Paul's in prison proclaiming the gospel thinking, all right, Paul's in prison, now's my chance. I can be the big dog now that Paul's in prison. I, I can steal his thunder. I can take the, the fruit of what Paul's labors have produced and claim it for my own. How selfish, right? How petty. That would make me so angry. I, I don't know how I could possibly stand it, but look how Paul handles it. The very next verse, verse 18. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Wow. Paul says, so what? If they're out there trying to steal my thunder, it wasn't my thunder to begin with. It was all Jesus's. It's all about Christ. The bottom line is that Christ is proclaimed, and that is cause for rejoicing. That's a better way to live, isn't it? Instead of being consumed by, by hatred for these guys who are out there trying to wreck him, instead of being consumed and feeling sorry for himself, oh man, I'm sitting here in prison, I can't do anything, that was my ministry, I started all those churches. Instead, he's like, praise God, it's a healthier way to live, isn't it? Mentally, physically, emotionally, and certainly spiritually. Rejoicing instead of fuming and having a pity party for himself. John the Baptist understood the supremacy of Christ and the need for Christ to be proclaimed above all. He reminded his resentful disciples of a, a wise saying, maybe this was a proverb, some commentators think that they may have heard previously, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Remember John Claypool's story about the, the washing machine, right? It's all gift. Everything we have is gift. We, we hold all that we have, not with a closed fist, but with an open hand, knowing that it's all from God. It's all for God. And 
in the end, it will all be God's again. We are just stewards of whatever we have for a time. It's all gift. Everything that we have is undeserved. And gratitude is the antidote for comparison and competition. If you find yourself struggling with comparison and and competition, try to be grateful. That will cure it. To realize that all we have is a gift from God helps us to not resent anyone because all they have is a gift from God as well. Jealousy gets squashed when we view what we have and what others have in that light. Again, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, that's a really messed up church. You ladies that are going through our our women's Bible study right now know all the problems that Corinth had. feel better about Woodmont when you read about Corinth. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? I love the way the uh, Living Bible translates this verse. You know, Jim Askew loved the Living Bible. He wanted the Living Bible read at his funeral. It says, what are you so puffed up about? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if all you have is from God, why act as, as though you have accomplished something on your own? And that's not, a, 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 that's not meant to be heard as a rebuke. It's meant to be a loving, freeing truth. Isn't that great? That we can move beyond ourselves and our own shallow, limited understanding and see that in the proper perspective of reality, it's all from God. In order to see things as they are, we have to know who God is and who we are in relation to him. Look at the next verse, verse 28. You yourselves, disciples, you know you bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. John knows, he's been saying all along, he's not the Messiah. He's an incredible prophet. He's right up there with Moses, even greater, according to Jesus. But he knows that he's not the Messiah. And there's great freedom in understanding our human limitations. When I say that we're broken and that we're flawed in our sinful flesh, there's freedom in that because God has unlimited power to come into our lives and to do what we could not do. His grace is sufficient for us. John then gives the proper attitude that we should display regarding Jesus Christ and his ministry. Look at verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. I've told you before that the single greatest day of my life was my wedding day. It was perfect from start to finish. The food was perfect. The weather, it was like 71 degrees. There were, you know, deer coming out of the woods. It was like a, a, a Disney cartoon, everything, the music. The music was incredible. Keith Parrish arranged the music for our wedding. It was, it was amazing, just a beautiful day. And I'm blessed to have a group of guys that I'm still close to today who have stood by each other at their weddings. You know them, Jordan Hester, Adam Rosenbaum, guys that I've walked with for a long time, for over half my life, and that we are still friends to this day. To stand by a friend like that as a groomsman in their wedding 
is, is not a, a diminishing of my joy, but it was a complete joy for me. It's an honor. It's a great privilege to stand by a brother in Christ on a really important day in their life when they become united to another human. Their happiness was my happiness. As you watch the groom's face as his bride walks in and he's just beaming, it just makes your heart swell, right? You're not jealous for him. You just are happy for him. That's how John felt about Jesus. That he was the friend of the bridegroom, he said. That, that phrase, friend of the, the bridegroom, has more significance in Hebrew context than what we could even imagine. According to William Barclay, the commentator, the friend of the bridegroom, the shoshben in Hebrew, had a unique place at a Jewish wedding. He acted as a liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. He arranged the wedding. He sent out the invitations. He presided over the week-long wedding feast. He brought the bride and the bridegroom together at the wedding day, and, and he had one special duty. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and to let no false lover in. He would only open the door when in the dark he heard the bridegroom's voice and recognized it. When he heard the bridegroom's voice, he was glad, and he let him in, and he went away rejoicing, for his task was completed. John the Baptist got to be the friend of the bridegroom. He got to be the best man at the miraculous wedding of God and his people. What we're gonna celebrate here is communion, that God has united us to Christ as one, that we are co-heirs now with Jesus. He had the great honor, the privilege of hearing his master's voice and he stood by him beaming with joy for that union. Shared joy is an amazing gift from God, isn't it? As Christians, we're family. We're, we're closer than blood, is what the Bible says, through the spirit who lives in us. We share the same DNA as God's children. And therefore, we can celebrate the successes of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We also share each other's burdens, too. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. To see Robert and Tony Caldwell come back from uh, a couple months at the beach today and see, to hear the people greeting them in the lobby today was amazing. It was like family homecoming. All the people who hugged their necks and who celebrated their arrival. We are family here. We rejoice with one another. And I've seen many of you cry with each other in the halls of this church as well and right here in this sanctuary. The key word that we really have been dancing around this whole morning is humility. You know, Mark Edwards is someone who I, I really admire his humility. I really respect the, the humility with which he conducts his ministry. It's been an example for myself. John's humility was the key to his greatness. Here he is, the, the, the popular, amazing, successful prophet with crowds lining up in the desert. The, the rumor was that John was Elijah incarnate. We know that King Herod himself wanted to come to John. But right when his popularity began to diminish and wane, he rejoiced. Jesus himself said of John, Matthew 11, Verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And yet, 
his humility was the key to his greatness. Humility allows us to get out of the way, to remove ourselves so that we can celebrate with others, so that we can be free from the comparison and competition temptation that so easily makes us miserable. That leads to one of my favorite verses in all of scripture, John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. When I was youth minister at um, our daughter church, Forest Hills Baptist Church, six miles south of here, we had the amazing privilege of having all these Belmont musicians come and, and lead our youth in worship. And I don't know what it is about Belmont people, Trey, but they all seem to have tattoos. And um, there was one guy from Florida uh, named Kyle Burnside, and he's a great worship leader. And he had massive tattoo on his left forearm that says, he must increase. And guess what his right forearm said? I must decrease. It was a constant reminder that for a Christian, that's the only way to live. That we constantly diminish ourselves into the background in order for Christ to be glorified through us. You know, as Baptists, we often claim the great father of modern missions, William Carey, he founded the Baptist Missionary Society. After a lifetime of, of service to the, the kingdom of God as a, a great missionary, he lay on his deathbed and he turned to a friend and said, when I am gone, don't talk about William Carey like I'm doing right now. Talk about William Carey's savior. I desire that Christ alone might be magnified. Isn't that wonderful? The remedy for jealousy the antidote for comparison, for competition, is to put Christ above all. No matter what happens to us, our desire to see Christ alone magnified will put our lives into proper context. Some scholars think that these last six verses here in 31 through 36 might be John's own commentary. It's a recap of the whole chapter, so let's just go through those verses quickly. How do we exalt Christ? How do we live into the new birth where Christ is supreme over all and we are diminishing? It starts by recognizing that Jesus is from above and we are from the earth. Look at verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. It reminds me of Isaiah saying, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. He who comes from heaven is above all. It's a humbling reminder of how limited we are in our understanding, our earthly ways, and God is unlimited in his heavenly, omniscient knowledge. Second, we have to understand that Jesus' testimony is firsthand knowledge. Look at verse 32. He bears witness to what he's seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Jesus was pre-existent with the Father and the Spirit before all time, and what he's testifying is what he has observed himself, and what he's testifying is good news. What he has seen is good news. It's gospel, that God is not abandoning us to our sin and to our brokenness, but he's coming to rescue it all and bring it back unto himself. Jesus has seen that evil is not going to win that death does not have the final word, but that God does. 
And every tear will be wiped away someday. Third, verse 33 shows us this, this good news is usually rejected by humanity. But to those who receive it, they, they confirm that God's gospel is true. The good news wins in the end. I'd bet my life on it. Fourth, in the new age, Jesus speaks God's truth by the Spirit's full power. Unlimited power. Verse 34 says, He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. That's Pentecost, right? The, the power of the Holy Spirit rushing upon God's people. The supernatural, miracle-working power of God comes only through his Spirit, whom Jesus has fully unleashed on this world without measure, holding nothing back. If we at Woodmont are going to thrive and become the kind of church that God wants us to be, it's only going to be by the power that comes through the Holy Spirit, the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. I hope you're praying for fresh wind and for fresh fire to fall on this church because we need that kind of power. Then we see that we receive the Spirit because Jesus has received all authority from God the Father. Look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Remember the word for love is agape, and it means gift love. You see that word give. For God so loved the world that what? That he gave his only Son. Love gives and gives and gives. He's given everything to the Son, the authority, who in turn gives us everything. That leaves us with the promise of verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Here, it, it seems that John equates belief in the Son with obedience, right? He says whoever has, believes in the Son has life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Life is found in Christ alone. Matthew 10, 39, one of my favorite verses, Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. All this striving to achieve something, trying to scratch out a, a living for our families, trying to get ahead in this life is worthless if Jesus is not the center of it all. John would write many years later as an old retired pastor to his flock in, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Remember that Jesus came, why? On the back of your shirts, teenagers, it says that we may have abundant life. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus comes to give us the bread of life, the fruit of the vine, as, as his blood of life giving us a new covenant in Christ. Do you have that life? Do you have the abundant life that Jesus came to bring us? Or are you caught up in the comparison game? It's so easy to, to spin your wheels trying to have a better life than your neighbor a better life than your social media contacts? Will you learn today to love being a part of the bridal party of Christ, getting to partake 
in the ultimate wedding feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb that we read about in Revelation. Jesus gives to us without limit, without limit of himself, without limit of the Spirit. We're going to commune with him today as we move into communion. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God, we come to you tired. We're weary of trying to get ahead in this life through our own devices, through our own feeble strength, through our own feeble ingenuity. God, we confess today that we are in need of your fresh fire in order to empower us to live the abundant life that you came to bring us. God, I pray that you would help us to receive the bread of life today anew. Not these little wafers, God, but the life that is found in you. God, I pray that we would learn to diminish into the background as you are glorified in our life. Help us to remember that it is no longer we who live. For those of us who are baptized into your life have died to ourselves, and it is now you who live through us, all for your glory and to accomplish your purposes, not our own. I pray that you would come now and prepare our hearts to commune with you in this sacred and holy moment. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.